My name is Steve Manns and I am alcoholic. And it's good to be here. It's good to be sober. I'd like to thank the meeting for having me out here and Christina for diligence in the follow-up. And um, it's always an honor and a privilege to to participate in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a sobriety date. It's the 11th day of June, 1993. I have a, a home group. It's a legacies group. On Sunday night, we meet over in Laguna Hills at St. George's Church. And, uh, and I have a sponsor. who's Bob D. out of Las Vegas. And he knows my, he's my sponsor. I just spent six days with him in Las Vegas. And um, um, he's uh, very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he, he thrives on good sponsorship and good home group and uh, a very, very tradition-based meeting. And, and, and I like to hold up those those same values. Um, it's not always been the case in my in my story. First, I'd like to thank uh, or, or congratulate all the CHIP people and uh, welcome to our new friends. Um, it's been my experience from this has been the most vigorating and best thing that ever happened to me from the cradle to the grave here so far. And um, and the CHIP people that, uh, that took birthdays. Congratulations, Max and, and those who took CHIPs. And, my good friend Don, you know, 48 years is a is a big deal. One year is a big deal. Um, they told me early on, if you don't think a birthday is a big deal, just try to get one. And then come back and try to tell me if it's a big deal. And uh, I, um, you know, I I believe that, that there's a couple of people in the room that, that, that I need to talk to. And, um, and I'm going to keep it short since we're a little short on time. But uh, the first person is uh, the, the new person. Because if you're anything like me, this isn't your first go around at this. Um, you've probably been in a treatment center before, or a detox before, or tried to get sober before. And, and if you're like me, you swore you weren't going to drink again. You weren't going to burn your life to the ground anymore. You weren't going to hurt your family anymore. And you went out, and the power of the drink took you back, and you did it one more time. And you ended up back here one more time. And... You're me, because that was my story. I, I went in and out for nine months, did four treatment centers, or three until the last one, uh, which was the fourth one. And uh, the other person is the person that's sitting in the rooms with a little bit of time. I don't know how much time. doesn't really matter. Um, and you're leaving the rooms, and you don't even know it. And that self-absorption... And that selfishness and self-centered that our book talks about is eating away at you a little bit at a time. And, uh, and with, for me, it starts out with one judgment at a time, one bad decision at a time, one missed call to the sponsor at a time. And then pretty soon I'm sitting on the outside of Alcoholics Anonymous looking in wondering why you're all so happy and I'm miserable. And I'm sitting in untreated alcoholism one more time, sober. And you are me also. I, um, in fact, uh, my story goes that at, at 14 years, I caused more spiritual damage in sobriety than I ever did when I was drinking. See, because something happens to me when I don't drink. You know, something happens to me when I drink. Let's start with that one. If something happens to me when I drink that doesn't happen to 90% to of the public, 90% of the population. They can drink. I, I work in a business where I see alcohol being served all the time, and I see it all the time. You know, somebody will have a glass of, or drink or wine or whatever they're drinking, beer, and they'll drink it and it'll last for hours. 
and that's not my story. Something happens to me when I take that drink. Somewhere about the end of the first drink and behind the, the end of the first drink and the end of the second drink, I get really thirsty. <laughs> and it's a thirst that can't be quenched by anything but alcohol. Right? It doesn't happen with water, doesn't happen with coffee, doesn't happen with orange juice, doesn't happen with anything else but alcohol. And that obsession kicks in and then it's on and it's on and it's on and it's on and it's not over until it's over. But something else happens that makes me alcoholic. It's what happens when I don't drink. You see, to watch me drink, I'm a really, really bad drunk. But you want to see my alcoholism? Watch me when I'm not drinking. Because that's when my alcoholism kicks in. That's when that that irritability and that discontentedness that our book talks about kicks in. I um, Quick little bio about me. I was born and raised in a middle-class family in, in Downey, California, right up the road there. Um, couldn't have come from a more loving family. Couldn't come from a more loving family. No alcoholism directly in the household. No violence in the household. It was perfect childhood. My fondest memories of my childhood were... Uh, Dad coaching our, our sporting good our sporting teams and mom on the sideline keeping score. Family vacations. I have an older brother who's two years older than me. He's not alcoholic. I have an adopted sister who's 11 years younger than me, not alcoholic. Neither parents are alcoholic. My grandmother, I can't say she's alcoholic, but when I was born, she was. Uh, my dad gave her an ultimatum and said, "Look, you either put the plug in the jug or you're never going to see your grandkids again." And she did exactly that for 17 years. Something tragic happened in her life. She pulled the plug out of that jug, and she was dead in three months. So the progression of this illness is obvious to me. I saw, I witnessed it firsthand when I was about 18 years old. My mom's side, her brother, my uncle, who I take after identically, he um, he never did try to get over, uh, lived the alcoholic dream, you know, that we all like to do, and went through marriages and jobs and. Um, jails and ended up drinking himself to death at the age of 52. So I saw the progression of this disease in two forms. One continual, one with abstinence and then and picking it back up and then was dead in three months. So I know this is a progressive illness, but that didn't stop me. My, my first drink was uh, somewhere around 14 years old. It wasn't magic. You know, you hear people share from our podiums that, you know, they took that drink and it burned and going down and it fire lit inside of me and it was on and and that's not my story at all um, had three tall Budweiser's got a good buzz going on wasn't like I couldn't wait to do it again and uh, and so the story went on drank a lot in high school never got in any trouble graduated high school at age 18 on a Thursday night in June and I had it all set up to where I was uh, I was starting with a with a major public utility um, company in, uh, on the Monday morning following. So three days out of high school I started. I start with a phone company and um, and now I'm in adult world. I'm 18 years old and you know and see I'm a chameleon. You know you, you hear our members also share a lot that they never felt like they fit in and that's not my story either. I always felt like I fit in. I always knew that I could fit in. I always knew that I could I could adapt and I could I could fit in wherever I went and I'd become part of. And, uh, and that's my story. So I start with the I start with this company in uh, age 18, and um, all these people were old. They're in their like 20s and 30s, and um, you know, and, and they they brought me right in, and I fit right in, and I learned how to drink. 
you know, and um, and so it was on. Uh, Twenty years old, I went fishing from the company pier and hooked up with a barracuda. Um, <laughs> and, no, I commonly known as plaintiff number one. Um, no, I, we're, we're dear friends today, but, uh, but I thought that's what I was supposed to do. You know, I, I was in this, in this environment where that's what everybody, everybody was married and everybody had kids and everybody had a house and white picket fence and a dog in the backyard. And, and I thought that's what I was supposed to do. That's the way I was raised. Um, my dad started working very early. He, you know, he's a career man. He's a company man. And, um, and, and I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And so off I went. 20s was uh, exciting. Um, we had our first child at age 25. The marriage was never real stable. I'll just touch on that real quick. Um, so it was never real stable. At 25, we have our first child. Um, at age 30, uh, marriage was really on the rock, so we thought we did what we were supposed to do and fix the marriage and have another child. So we have our daughter at age 30. And uh, by this time, I'm, I've... I've transferred into, at age 20, I transferred into, or 21, I transferred into a, a, a department that, uh, um, that I always wanted to go into. It was a, it was a construction field of the, of the phone company, so I was a lineman for, for 19 years before I got into, promoted into management. But they, they really taught me how to drink. And, uh, and these boys drank, and they drank on the job. And, you know, and, and they, uh, the only difference between them and me was that I, they could shut it down, and I couldn't, you know. When they, we drank in the afternoon and, and we went back into the yard and parked our trucks and went on our merry way, I had to keep going. And I would disappear for days at a time. You know, I'd go on my little runs and um, did that one too many times. I came home and the house was completely empty. And uh, I had no idea where the wife went. I had no idea where the kids were. I had no idea where the furniture was. I had no idea of anything. The only thing that was left in that house was my clothes in the closet. Now, one would think that a first thought was, well, um, where's my wife, where's my kids, where's my furniture, where's my life? And, uh, and that wasn't my thought at all. My thought was, now I can drink like I need to drink. Because by this time, I'm drinking on a daily basis. I can't go more than three or four hours without a drink. I have violent shakes when I don't drink. I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm waking up in the middle of the night and have to take some pulls off a bottle of warm vodka to, just to, just to calm the nerves just enough to get a little more sleep. By the time I wake up, I'm pounding it before I go to work. I'm pounding it during the day at work. I'm sneaking it around. I'm, everything in my life was planned around where my next drink was. I was completely physically addicted to alcohol. I, um, I did the next best thing. I did what every lineman does, you know, when they're in trouble is I call mommy. And, uh, and I called Mommy up and I said, look, Mom, you know, she left me and I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and she says, don't worry, son, come come on, move back in and we'll take care of all this. Everything's going to be okay. And she had no idea the monster she was letting in the house. No idea. She had no idea the progression of my drinking. She had no idea the progression of my illness. <clears throat> all she knew that uh, her son was in trouble and she let me back in the house. And, uh, and I continued to burn through her life for the next two years. I, um, <clears throat> within, within a few months, I, I got it hooked up with an old girlfriend from high school through some circumstances, and she lived down here in Laguna Niguel, right around the corner, actually, and uh, came down to see her the first night, and by the, by the second night, I was moving clothes in, and um, 
And she had no idea the monster she was letting in her life. Right? I wasn't that guy from high school anymore. <clears throat> so it wasn't long before she said, you know, Steve, I think you have a drinking problem. And I have this friend at work that her husband is a, um, he goes to these AA meetings and he, he loves to take people to these meetings. And I think you need to go. Um, and I, you know, I'm a smart guy. I know the heat's coming, right? So I says, okay. And uh, thank God for for our our members that that do the primary purpose and what this program is is designed to do. And every Tuesday night he came by and he picked me up. Him and his buddy picked me up and threw me in the back seat and took me up to Irvine to a men's meeting up there. And uh, and this uh, this went on for a few months and. Um, and I wasn't sober. I was drinking in between that meeting. And I have no idea even what was said in this meeting. <clears throat> All I know is that they, they made good fun of me. They used to say things like on the way to the meeting, they said, so, Steve, when's your sobriety date? Next Tuesday? <laughs> and I laugh, ha, ha, funny, funny. And uh, fast forward, I uh, don't want to get sober here. I, um, I ended up uh, um, going into to, to three hospital Programs much like this one, real nice, plush, you know, spin dry detox. They'd give me my Librium, my Valium, my, you know, all that stuff, and they, you know, I'd, I'd detox because shakes would go away. Well, four days later, five days later, I'd be out running again, right? Because I've started feeling good. No program behind me, no, no base, no nothing. I was out running again. Claudia had not wanted nothing to do with me. Mom wanted nothing to do with me. I came to that place that our book talks about. Uh, into the jumping off place. You know, I couldn't live with alcohol and I couldn't live without alcohol. I came to that place. You know, they, and I'm a coward, right? And, and, I, and I says, I can't get sober. The, the, the ex-wife, we were going through a divorce at the time, and, you know, the ex-wife didn't want to, you know, she couldn't trust me with the children. They're very young. My daughter was, uh, was two. My son was seven. And, um, and I had no reason to live anymore. So I proceeded to check myself into a hotel room, and I'm going to drink myself to death, right? I don't have the guts to put a bullet in my head. I don't have the guts to run my car into a bridge abutment. I don't have the guts to jump off a bridge. So I'm just going to drink myself to death. Uncle Dwayne did it, right? It worked for him. I want to drink, and I want to die. Sounds like a pretty addiction to me. So I was there. I locked myself down in that hotel room and proceeded to, to attempt to drink to myself to death. And... Um, Somewhere about five days later, I, uh, there was a knock on the door, and, you know, and I had the do not disturb sign out. And I'm thinking, it can't be housekeeping because I'm not showering. I don't eat towels. And, and, um, see, there's only one problem with, with trying to drink yourself to death. My sponsor says, you know, Steve, that um, you know, drinking yourself to death is being, it's, it's just like being kicked to death by rabbits. It, it takes a very, very long time, and it's very, very painful. And I didn't know that at the time, but you know, now I do. So I recommend that to anybody that if you're going to try and drink yourself to death, you know, plan it. It's going to take a while, right? It's going to be very, very painful. So I, um, I open up that door, and there's mom standing there, right? And she says, come on, we're going to go to that place. Now, I didn't know that she had talked to one of those counselors in one of those other programs about a place that she, he told her that if he wants to get sober, he's going to have to go to a place like this. And it was called Cider House, and it was on the grounds of Metropolitan State Hospital. Now, anybody familiar with this area knows Metropolitan State Hospital is the Norwalk Nut House, right? It's a very, very old mental hospital. It's been around since the 20s. And, um, and what happened is that Cider House rented a building from the state 
or at least a building from the state, and uh, they had an indigent detox there with a primary program. It was a 60-day lockdown program upstairs, and, and she, I got in the car. Somewhere on that time when she said, come on, you're going with me, I believe that, that willingness and desperation collided on the 10th day of June, 1993, and, I got, and, I, and God's grace stepped in, and I got swooped up to this program. She dropped me off. I rolled out of the car. She said, don't call me. I'll call you. And floored it and took off, and, and, uh, and, I, and I started on my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was willing, and I was desperate, and that's what it took. So I went into this detox for 11 days. I sat in that detox for the first seven days. I couldn't speak. I couldn't talk. I couldn't, I couldn't walk. I couldn't feed myself. They spoon-fed me. Um, they gave me honey water, warm honey water to take away the shakes, and it really didn't take away the shakes. No meds, no nothing, cold turkey. They put me in what they called the wet dorm. It was an old 10 by 10 padded cell back in the day, and there was a mattress on the ground. There was three mattresses in that room, and they, were all, they put the mattresses right on the ground in case you seized up and rolled off. You wouldn't hurt yourself too bad. And that's where my journey began. They were an Alcoholics Anonymous based program. They made us do for the first three steps in that 60 days, and, and, my, and my journey started. I, uh, I moved over from, I completed that 60 days. I was fortunate enough to go upstairs. I got a sponsor. The guy that did my intake was my first sponsor, and, uh, and he walked me through the rest of the steps. You know, my powerlessness and my unmanageability was obvious. Look at my life. Right? Um, you know, I, I, I was raised in a, in a religion that I believed in, and I believed that there was a God. I just didn't think I was worthy of his, of his grace. Um, I had done a lot of damage, and I had done a lot of hurt, and I had done a lot of harm out there. And I didn't think God was, was, was willing to say, okay, I'll let, I'll let you back in, right? So it took a little work on step two. And, then, and I, once I decided I was going to turn my will, and I made that decision in step three, and I turned my will and my life over to God, um, you know, things started to shift a little bit, right? And, and, and that was very difficult. And even it's difficult today. You know, I like to take back that, that will. I like to come back into self, right? I'm, I'm so self-absorbed and I'm such a selfish and self-centered person. That, that it's very difficult for me to stay in that grace. But, uh, and he made me launch into a, a, a vigorous course of action. He made me do a four-step, right? Because the big book is very, very specific in, in, in what it says. It says there's very these terms as like at once, right? Immediately. That doesn't mean when you're ready. It means at once and immediately. And he told me that. And he said, look, we're going to get into this four-step. And, you know, I don't think the four, my first four-step was that, that great. It was just the best I could do at the time, right? That's all I could do. But I put all this stuff down in paper, and he was very, very gracious to point out all my character defects so I, during my fifth step so I could, I could go to do a six and seven. And then that amends process. I got into that eight and nine, right? And I made that list, and I became willing to make amends to these people because I had done a lot of hurt and a lot of harm. And, uh, I mean, I could, I could go on for an hour just talking about my amends and, uh, and how I hurt and harm those people that are closest to me. See, I burned through every single, every single person in my life. Nobody wanted me around. Because you're looking at a guy at 33 years old that family didn't want to see him coming on holidays. You know, you're looking at a guy at 33 years old that, that nobody at work would trust, trust me enough to work with him. And I worked in a very dangerous business, and nobody would, would, would work with me. I mean, I, and I hurt and I harmed everybody in my path. And uh, so the, pro the men's process was, was very, very long. You know, I, 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 try, to, I try to do a 10th, a 10 and 11 every day. Um, 
But I'll be honest with you. You know, some days I fall way short. I fall way short. Um, you know, I get up in the morning. I have this relationship with my God that's, that's we're like buddies. You know, I talk to him all the time. You know, I don't, I don't get on my knees and I don't hold my hands and I don't sit on next to my bed and pray to him. I pray to him all the time, right? And whatever his will is is what his will is. And, uh, and, and that's what I have to accept. See, because it's easy to say those words, but it's very difficult to accept those words. But when I have to get quiet enough and still enough to see what, what grace and what beauty he, he gives me, that's, that's where I get the, the glory. And then the 12th step, where I, where I get to pass this on. And, you know, and they said, you know, with this comes great responsibility. You know, you're going you're gonna to pass whatever you have on to another alcoholic. And that's what it's all about, right? That's what this is all about. This is closest to the purest form of Alcoholics Anonymous you're going to get as a speaker meeting. It's one alcoholic talking to another. I can go to, I can go to participation meetings and listen to all these people sharing all their stuff. The problem, with my, in my opinion, is with participation meetings is it breaks it down into thirds. The first third of the meeting, I'm wondering what I'm going to say. The second third of the meeting, I'm, I'm judging you for what you said. And then the second third of the meeting is uh, I'm wondering I should have said something different. Right? And sometimes I miss the message. Right? So I think, I think the purest form is, is a speaker meeting and working with another alcoholic on a one-on-one -on -one basis, going through the book, reading the black print, going through exactly the way I was taught in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, um, I attend as many meetings as I can. I, um, I know that... Uh, I skipped over the part where um, at 14 years sober, it happened, at, well, actually it's happened three times in my sobriety. At seven years sober, I got promoted, right? That company trusted me. They said, look, we'd, we'd love to promote you. You were looking at you before you became a bad drunk, right? And now you've shown that you, you know, got your stuff together again, and, you know, we'd like to, like to groom you and promote you. And, uh, and I, they did exactly that. And, uh, and see, that job became more important my sobriety. See, because it, I got to do a good job, and I got to impress, right? And, and see that, I got I to gotta know what you think of me. Now, that's not important what you think of me. It's what I think you think of me is the really important part that I feel, right? And that's where I get caught up in. So they promote me at seven years, and I start backing away from the, from the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I whoa, woke up, and I jumped back in, and and that one wasn't so bad. But at 14 years, they said, you know, we want to promote you again. And they did just that. So they promote me to the next level up. And by this time, I'm starting a new department. I'm, I'm working my butt off. I'm working 12, 14-hour days. And, you know, the meeting, I can't go to the meeting tonight. i got work to do. I'm traveling. I'm doing all this stuff. And, and, uh, and pretty soon, you all don't I'm so important. See, the baffling feature about my disease or my illness is that, see, not only is my drinking progressive by nature, so is my behavior. And if I'm not treating my alcoholism, my behavior continues to progress. I'm not drinking, but my behavior continues to progress. And I'm willing to do more and more and more readily to get that feeling and that, and that satisfaction that I need in here, in this God-sized hole in my gut, right? So as I'm sitting in untreated alcoholism, I'm, I'm willing to do anything to make myself feel better and treat my alcoholism with everything available. And for a sober alcoholic, that can become very dangerous, and we can be, cause some very, very bad spiritual damage in, in, in that act. 
<clears throat> and that's exactly what I did. I found myself in Las Vegas, Nevada at, uh, at the Men's International Convention in 2007. And the first speaker of Friday night was, in, was my now sponsor, Bob D. And, and, uh, and, he, and he explained to me exactly what I was suffering from. The next morning, the next speaker up was a good friend of mine, Ralph W. from L.A., and, and, um, and he explained exactly what I was suffering from. It woke me up just enough to jump back into the program. I, I asked Bob, I went, called to Bob, and I said, Bob, I'm dying. I'm untreated alcoholism. I need help. And he got me back in a course of action to save my life one more time. Thank God um, I haven't taken a big dip in the last 12 years, but it's come close, right? See, because time does not constitute sanity. Time does not constitute supreme serenity. <laughs> what we have is a, is, is a daily reprieve based on our spiritual condition, as Don said. And, uh, and as long as I stay active in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I, uh, I got a chance. As long as I'm working with other alcoholics, as long as I'm attending regular meetings regularly. Don said it. You can become anonymous in an anonymous program. Orange County has so many meetings that we could become anonymous in an anonymous program. We go to a different meeting every day and never even see anybody. You know, pop in here, pop in there, pop in there, pop in here, and, uh, and never get active in a home group. I recommend if you're new, find a good sponsor. Find a good home group. Find your place in Alcoholics Anonymous. Give this thing a shot. You know, give this thing a shot, and, and, you know, and your life will change. You know, I um, amazing things have happened in my life, and tragic things have happened in my life. You know, those kids that um, that I all but abandoned um, in in 1993. Um, my daughter's now 28 years old, and my son's 33 years old, and they both chose the medical field. My daughter's a nurse. Son's going to be a nurse. He's an EMT now. He's going to school for, to be a nurse as we speak. <clears throat> and um, my daughter chose to get into the treatment industry. Her first six years of her career as a as a nurse, she got into the into the industry, right? And I asked her one time, Eric, why? I mean, there's all kinds of cool places you could work, right? You could be in pediatrics, you could be in an emergency room, anywhere, right? Why treatment? And she says, Dad, I grew up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I see the miracles that happen here. I see how one helps another. Why wouldn't I want to be a part of that, that journey with other people? Right? It's, it's the most amazing thing that I ever heard. And I thought, wow. And that's not me. You know, the men in the program taught me how to be a father. They taught me. Those times I was going to throw in the towel, right? My ex-wife moved away two and a half hours away. Um, and, and I was ready to throw in the towel and move away. I was done, right? The men in the program told me, look. No, those are your children. You have obligations. You're going to pay that child support on time. And guess what? You're going to drive up, and you're going to see those kids every time they have a function in school. If they have a two-second part in a play, guess where you're going to be sitting? In the front row watching them. And you know what? He was absolutely right. Every man that told me that was absolutely right. Today I have a relationship that's beyond my wildest dreams. You know, bad things happen in this program, too. On April the 23rd of this year, just over a month ago, that woman that pulled me out of that hotel room passed away. And I was sitting there holding her hand. 
I leaned down and I asked her, I says, Mom, I says, you know, I says, I love you. When we were saying our goodbyes, and I says, I love you. And I hope I made you proud. And thank you for saving my life on June the 10th, 1993. And for a brief moment, she opened her eyes and she smiled. And I knew I was good. Three hours later, you know where I was? In a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with my sponsor. He didn't notice it happened, and I walked up, and he says, Bob, Bob says, how's, how's your mom? And I says, I said, she passed away three hours ago. And he says, I got one question for you. Are you square? And I says, as a block. See, that woman loved Alcoholics Anonymous. Every time she, we, she had her favorite speakers like I do, and every time she says, when's so-and-so going to talk again? When's so-and-so? And to make sure I come to the meeting. And she, she'd sit right here in the front row and listen to him talk. And she loved Alcoholics Anonymous because it saved her son's life. You know, sometimes I think we get, we forget why we're here. And I like to close with this. Every single time we come to one of these meetings, some little girl, some little boy is getting ready to come have her, have mommy or daddy come home. Every time we go to one of these meetings, some parents can be able to sleep tonight because they know that their son or daughter is sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. Every time we go to these meetings, some employer is going to get ready to have a hell of an employee come back in the workforce. Why wouldn't I want to be a part of it? life-changing and life-altering experience like that. If I've learned one thing, I know that, that my sobriety is a gift from God. What I do with my sobriety is my gift to God. Thank you.